Well, some uh, housekeeping issues before I begin my sermon today. Uh, Starting next week, we will begin our study of 1 Corinthians, the book of 1 Corinthians in the New Testament. And typically what we've done is we've purchased like journals uh, for that. It's the ESV Scripture Journal. And we are not we are unable to back order until the end of September. So if you enjoy those, let me encourage you to uh, maybe try to find one online. I couldn't order 20, but there might be uh, a small amount that you could get um, for yourself and your family if you find those helpful. Uh, but I'm going to conclude today our series on a world of knockoffs and finish my sermon on false teachers. So as Curtis read, we're in Second Peter today. And just to remind us the dangers that we face in this world today as um, we are inundated with false and erroneous doctrine about the, the truth of God. Where the people are going and they're spouting off lies and they're spouting off falsehood. And we as the church need to be warned in the same way that the early church during Peter's day needed to be warned. We need to be aware of the dangers there so that we can be alert, so that we can be uh, conscious of the, the dangers that are there that we might not fall into false teaching. And if we're uh, familiar with people in our lives that have fallen into false teaching, you know that it's a subtle fall. It's typically someone that uh, has been approached or taught by another loved one. Um, Typically, I don't think that people fall into false teaching um, maybe just by watching something on TV, although that's, that's oftentimes... Uh, available to them uh, and they are very susceptible to that but I think a lot of times it's another loved one that might introduce false doctrine to us and that false doctrine might lead us to investigate and to study and to understand more until we fall into a pit that's very difficult to come out of um, in, in, in false teaching And so one of the warnings throughout the, the New Testament particularly is that false teachers exist And we need to understand the Word of God so that we can uh, identify false teaching. And we need to understand the practice and the schemes of false teachers so that we can identify them. Okay? And we looked at two last time. Very quickly and briefly, we looked at their deceptive intrusion and their deviating loyalty. We talked about the fact, as Peter states, that they secretly come in. Among us, in verse 1, false prophets arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies. They are rising up, rising up among the people, and in doing so, they are uh, introducing and teaching doctrines. We looked at Jesus calling them wolves in sheep's clothing. They are uh, disguising themselves. Therefore, their intentionality to deceive is clear. And we need to understand that. We looked at the word pseudo-didaskos, which means a teacher of falsehood. In other words, they are not um, misunderstanding Scripture. They are purposely trying to corrupt and deceive us so that they might gain themselves some advantage over us. 
It might be our loyalty. It might be our money. It might be some reason that they might uh, want to deceive us other than bringing glory and honor to the Lord. And so when we think about their deceptive nature, we obviously focus on the idea that this is literally just a scheme of the devil. That Satan himself is the father of lies. He even disguises himself as an angel of light. And therefore, he wants to promote falsehood through false teaching. And when Paul gives a list of good teachers in the Bible, when he gives qualifications of pastors and elders, he, he preaches uh, uh, the exact opposite, a contrasting character quality. He says that, that pastors or elders should be above reproach. And what that means is they must be of the highest, utmost integrity, being men of truth, not people that speak falsehood. And over and over again in the history of the church, we have seen people lie and deceive and to get away with it. And we need to understand that there should be a high uh, character quality of our leaders and our elders, a above approach uh, a qualification that we must meet, that I and Adam and Stuart, we hold ourselves to that qualification. Not that we are perfect, but that God holds us to a standard of integrity, of truthfulness. False teachers are the exact opposite. They are seeking to deceive the masters. We also talked about their deviating loyalty. We looked at the status of these false teachers and their position before God. We understood in this problematic passage which states that the master who bought them, we came to understand that that simply means that they had not fallen from the faith, they had not lost their salvation, but they had deceived us and the church into believing that they they were believers and they were faithful to Christ. Matter of fact, in 1 John, we read that um, John says, They went out from us, speaking of false teachers and prophets, they went out from us because they were not of us. If they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out that it might become clear or plain that they were not of us. Very clear instruction for us that false teachers are not true believers. They're not genuine followers of Christ. They haven't fallen just into sin. They are guilty of intentional deception and schemes of the devil. And so today, what I want to focus on is um, really uh, uh, the the rest of verses 3 down to verse 14 and some of 15 and seeing their destructive practices. Because what we've done in this series is we've, we've kind of taken these steps uh, down a path of understanding these knockoffs or these falsities in our world. False conversions, false gospels, and, and now false teachers. And we need to be clear and we need to be uh, very understanding uh, of, of these dangers that surround us so that we might be prepared to identify them and stand against them. So one of the destructing practices, destructive practices that we need to think about in false teaching is that their teaching will destroy you. They will just, it will destroy you. It will lead to your destruction. We see in, in verse uh, 2, many will follow them. 
They will follow their sensuality. And because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. Peter warns the church that we should be careful because of the, the, the way in which false teachers lead genuine people astray. So that, that, that we might think that they are genuine and we think that they're, they're teaching good things and, and in our ignorance, and our uneducated minds, we might be lured to believe these things. Paul uses a, a very, or excuse me, Peter uses a very strong word that many will follow their sensuality. That, that's a word that is uh, uh, focusing on the lust of our flesh that, that oftentimes they allure us away with our passions and our desires. Kind of as Paul tells us and warns us in a very similar way that, it, that in certain times in the future, people will surround themselves with teachers who will tickle their ears and tell them what they want to hear. That's the same idea. That being led away by our passions is to follow false teachers who tell us what we want to hear and not what God wants us to hear. And that's the clear difference. Adam gave us a great example last week. The, the dangers of psychiatry and the, 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 the dangers in believing uh, certain principles of psychiatry and in in our, in, in the way in which it contrasts our belief in Christ. And I would encourage you to go back and, and really contemplate those things as, as the, the, the idea of, of what responsibility we really have before God. So that we would not fall into a victim mentality, blaming other people for our, for our life and our situation. But instead, we would lean into what the Bible teaches us, that we are responsible for ourselves. That even though circumstances might begin to mold and shape our environments, our choices are our choices and we are responsible for them. We can't blame our parents. We can't blame our teachers. Even though horrible things might have come, in the end, we will stand before God and hold, be accountable to those decisions, not those people. And things like psychiatry... And psychology want us to believe, through men like Freud and Skinner and others, want us to believe that it's someone else's problem. Let me give you another example. There is a movement going around in our world today. It's a sensitive subject, but you need to understand it. It's the the movement of being woke. It's wokeism, as many people have called it. And it is an attack against the gospel. Now let me say from the start that I think that there are people that are a part of the movement of being woke or um, as some would call it critical race theory as a piece of that that have genuine aspirations of that movement to, to help fight against prejudice and hate towards others. And listen, I am all for fighting against prejudice and hate toward other people. It is the way of the Lord Jesus Christ that we should love people regardless of what they look like. Regardless of what ethnicity they come from. 
But this movement of being woke has moved beyond a simple care for one another. It is literally rebranding hate for hate. It is literally taking certain groups of Americans and isolating themselves and saying that these people, based on the color of their skin, are the guilty party. While they fight against the very same thing that has happened to them historically, they're doing those same violent and unloving acts toward now another group of people. And the biggest threat of it all, and the, we, the reason it's an attack against the gospel, is because it does not take personal responsibility for ourselves. It wants to cast the blame on someone else. So this really piggybacks on what Adam talked about last week, that once again, wokeism is just another attack of Satan to victim mentality. That it is somebody else that has caused this difficulty in my life. I'm not responsible for my choices. Now, on both sides of the fence, that is not true. Wokeness does not promote individual responsibility. It instead promotes a corporate guilt. You are not guilty, they say, because you acted as an individual against another individual. They say you are guilty because you belong to a certain group of people. For some, you're guilty because of the color of your skin or because of the gender that you were born into. And on the other side, if you don't belong to these labeled groups of oppressors, then you bear no guiltiness. You are therefore the victim. And when you're the victim, the guilt falls on others, not yourself. This is self-centered victimhood and it's anti-gospel. Because the gospel starts with the realization that we are all guilty of our individual sins. That's what it teaches. You are not guilty for the sins of your forefathers. You are not guilty for what your ancestors did 50 to 100 to 200 years ago. There's no reason for you to feel guilt or shame in what something else or somebody else did in your family lineage. And you are definitely, church, not guilty because of the color of your skin. But you are guilty if you you harbor hate and prejudice in your own heart toward people that are different than you. And for those reasons, you repent. And in the same way, if you belong to the other side of the argument, to say that you are not guilty of that is illogical because it is demonstrated day by day in our world. And so church, we must understand that this practice of and this belief of wokeism is an attack against the gospel. Look at what Owen Strand says. Wokeness judges us without knowing the hidden motives of our heart. Knowledge only God possesses. He says, if you've heard that you are guilty of white supremacy simply because you're of your whiteness, you've been falsely convicted and unbiblically indicted. He says, you do have real sin, but your skin color and your heritage are not inherently sinful. Such a conclusion is totally foreign to Scripture. If it were true, entire people groups could never come to Christ. 
Yet scripture reveals in a gospel that saves people from every tongue, tribe, and nation. What woke ideology does not do is it does not help society's difficulties. It only reinvents them. Hate is still existing, disunity is still there and being promoted because man's ways to heal society never work. These ideologies like psychiatry and and wokeness, another one I'm going to speak of, the prosperity gospel, they do not deal with the true underlying problem with man, his sin. Therefore, our only hope is when a heart of an individual change. And when those individual hearts change, it infects other people that change. And those groups that are changed then can impact their communities and their nation. Therefore, our relationship with God affects the way that we interact with other people, the love that we have, the care that we show, the brokenness and the remorse that we might see over prejudice in our own lives or the lives of other people. But these woke teachers are not pointing people to love like Jesus, but instead hate like Satan. Peter calls such things destructive heresies. They are destructive in the same way that Peter might use the word in a sense of war. It means annihilation. That same Greek word, destructive, was used when Herod wanted to destroy the baby Jesus. Similarly, in Matthew's gospel, the Greek word apolemi is used in uh, chapter 27, verse 3, when the crowd of Jews want to release Barabbas, but they want Jesus to be destroyed. The destruction of such false teaching leads us to a spiritual separation and annihilation from God. Therefore, if we follow these teachers... We will stray into unhealthy lands that will lead us to our spiritual doom. And therefore, we must be aware. So their teaching will destroy us. It will also exploit us. Secondly, Peter says in verse 3, In their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Mr. Terry was so faithful to read Scripture two weeks ago from the Geneva Bible. It's an old Bible with old English literature that, that, uh, or, or English, English language that's, that, that, that really captured this in, in new and helpful ways. Verse 3 in the Geneva Bible re- reads, and, and through covetousness shall their feigned words make merchandise of you. That's what it means to exploit you. That false teachers want to profit off of you. They want to gain some physical advantage over you. You become their merchandise. Could there be a more dehumanizing understanding of the schemes of false teaching? That we are articles of commerce that bring some fair prize to the false teacher who holds us in their hand. They are operating for profit as a prophet, a false prophet of God. 
And Paul elaborates further if you look down in verses 13 and 14. Verses 13 and 14, it says, Suffering wrong is the wage of their wrongdoing. They count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are blots and blemishes reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. Reveling is is giving in to the passions of your flesh. And what, what he's saying here is that they are reveling, they are indulging in their own sin and their own deception while they feast with you. Sitting at your table, having communion and community with the believers in Jesus Christ, and yet all the while seeking to deceive you. And not just to deceive you, but to gain some profit off of you. Now, young people, you understand this in a unique way. Us adults, we are detached from the social sphere that this necessarily makes a lot of sense. But when you're in middle school and high school, especially in a public school, you understand the cool kids in school that you can hang out with that gain some advantage for you. If you could just be friends with Steve or or Julie, then you have some social advantage by being their friend. And so you go and sit at the lunch table with them and and you buddy up with Julie or Steve and, and you're like, hey, let's be friends. But all the while, as you feast with them, you are simply deceiving them so that you can gain some political or social advantage from them. Now, I never had to experience that because I wasn't the cool kid in school. Maybe you weren't either. But you understand the picture. These people have come into your homes, they've come into your lives intimately, uh, having communion and fellowship with you, all the while seeking to deceive Look at verse 14. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable or unending for sin. They seduce unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed. Peter uses heavy, picturesque words here that is, they're hard not to just camp on for two weeks in a sermon. But their desires to seek the greed and the lust and the self-indulgence is clearly a sign that they are unbelievers. And they are seeking to line their pockets and fill their bellies at your expense. But what's most striking in these verses, especially in verse 14 to me, is that their hearts are trained in greed. Trained. The word trained there is the same word that we get the word gymnasium. That they are literally uh, disciplining their bodies. But not to work out physically, but literally they are training themselves in their deceptions. It it, it really brings uh, to light this intentionality that it's an exploitation that's not accidental, but intentional and and devised to deceive and rob you at your expense. Therefore, it's, not, it's hard not to immediately draw our minds then to another dangerous doctrine in, in the world today, the prosperity gospel. 
This is literally the epitome of the prosperity gospel. False teachers seeking to exploit others of their money. In his book, God, Greed, and the Gospel, Costi Hinn, the nephew of televangelist Benny Hinn, speaks of his life growing up under the influence of Benny Hinn, the famous prosperity gospel preacher, before the Lord saved him and rescued him from this false teaching. Hinn, who is now an evangelical pastor in the, in the West, leading a congregation at the shepherd's house, faithfully preaching against the prosperity gospel. He shares his testimony in a riveting book I would encourage you to read, God, Greed, and the Gospel. And he writes this. He calls Benny, Uncle Benny, by the way, quote, one of Uncle Benny's heroes who taught him about the system of believing, giving, and receiving was Oral Roberts. We all remember Oral Roberts. It seemed he could open the windows of heaven, he says, and cause them to rain down blessings on his own life. It was a simple money-in, money-out transaction with God as the banker. Oral Roberts wanted to help more people understand it and take the risk to put it into practice. He taught that this was the way of thinking that was used by Jesus and the apostles. For Roberts, he says, it was faith that forced God to do what we wanted him to do. Believing enough, he says, thinking positively enough, and giving enough could actually control the Creator. Roberts had taught Benny, who taught others, that he had used his teachings on money and faith to rise out of obscurity and into stardom, and then helped others to do the same. I couldn't help but think about that story when I read Peter's words that false teachers are trained to deceive. Their hearts are trained. And praise God that God would resurrect and raise up a man like Costi to not only deny this empire that he was set to, uh, uh, to, to, to sit on the throne of after his uncle passed it down to him. He turned against and away from all that as Christ saved him and now is faithfully preaching the gospel and preaching against such false doctrine. And so we need to draw the contrast then. The contrast of false teaching with the biblical command that good teachers and preachers of the gospel do not give themselves to greed. Remember with me in 1 Timothy chapter 3 that one of the qualifications of, a, of an elder and a teacher and preacher is that we would not be drunkards, that we would not be violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, and not a lover of money. Again, in Titus chapter 1, an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or drunk or violent or greedy for gain. Peter also says in Peter chapter 5, 1 Peter chapter 5, that as we as shepherds should exercise oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. All three of those passages remind us by Peter or by Paul that the pastor, the elder, the teacher of God's Word is not a man who seeks out, and also not a woman, but not a man who seeks out this office for greedy gain. 
God has called men to lead the church and preach God's word and to do so even if very little is given to them financially. Paul actually meets with this one of his favorite churches, the, the, uh, the church in Ephesus. And in Acts chapter 20, he actually tells the elders in Ephesus, I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. He says, you yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. Paul saying, I wasn't going to covet financial gain. I wasn't going to allow greed and money to influence me. He says, matter of fact, my own hands ministered to my needs so that I could be faithful and not tempted in greed. And so a faithful teacher of God's Word is not trying to exploit you to, God, to, uh, to take away from you financially, but instead, he's seeking to give you the abundance of wealth and riches that we find in God's Word. He understands the truth that Jesus taught in Matthew chapter 6, that treasures on earth are worthless. They, they rust and moths destroy them, and thieves break in and steal them. But to lay up treasures in heaven where these things cannot be corrupted, this is where a good, true treasure is. So false teachers seek to exploit and live as greedy people. But true, faithful teachers of God's Word don't don't rely on riches and, and, and finances. Am I faithful to preach God's Word to you and thankful that you financially support me? Yes. I'm very thankful for that. Adam is very thankful for that. Stuart is now thankful for that. But Stuart was faithful to serve this church for over seven years and not receive a dime of money from us. That's the type of elders that the world should desire or the the church should desire in this world. And I'm thankful that we have them here. Lastly, teaching that destroys, teaching that exploits, and lastly, teaching that blasphemes the Lord. Peter tells us that the way of truth is blaspheme, verse verse, uh, 2. Many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. The word blaspheme there means to to, to denigrate. It means to deny or to twist or to corrupt or to fame or to slander. And the very uh, synopsis of their work and their devices in this world is that they are blaspheming and defaming and slandering the very glory and honor that is due to the Lord Jesus. Every divisive and sneaky and and exploitive work that they bring about dishonors Christ and His Word. Not only do they twist the Scriptures and what God has said, but they do so with lies and falsehood. And so Peter is telling us that, that the way of truth is blasphemed. Four times he uses the word blaspheme in these verses, in verses 1 through 15, to remind us of these, this evil work of false teachers in relationship to the gospel. 
They take what is holy and true about the Lord, what brings Him honor and glory, and they twist it and corrupt it and slander His name. Look at verse 12. He says, But these, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters in which they are ignorant. This once again identifies to these, that these false teachers whom they belong. That they are literally irrational animals. That they don't belong to Christ because they will be destroyed by Him in judgment. But as they blaspheme, they blaspheme about things in which they are ignorant, church. They speak about things that they don't know. It's interesting that in Romans chapter 1, the Bible tells us that unbelievers suppress the truth in their unrighteousness. Therefore, they deny the very things of God. And in denying the very things of God, some of these unbelievers rise up, they become false teachers, and then and, and not only do they suppress the truth, but they begin to spread the lies about God to other people. And they are bearing the name of a teacher or prophet or preacher of God, and they are not authorized by Him. Instead of teaching what He, the Lord, has said... They teach doctrines that twist what the Lord has said. Instead of teaching doctrines that glorify Christ, they actually teach doctrines that glorify man. That's what wokeism and psychiatry and and prosperity gospels as just examples do. They glorify man. They do exactly what man wants to happen. It brings glory to man and not to God. And therefore their destination is doom. Verse 3 says their condemnation from long ago is not idle and their destruction is not asleep. Again, verse 12, they will be destroyed, the Bible says, in their destruction. In their destruction suffering wrong as the wage for their wrongdoing. What Peter does in these verses is not only is he identifying for us false teachers, but he's reminding the church, church, don't be afraid, don't worry. God does not allow such people to escape his wrath. Peter concludes with an assurance that these false teachers will not escape the great punishment of the Lord. He calls them irrational animals because the Lord will hunt them down like wild animals and He will judge them for their wrongdoing. They will not escape the condemnation that's destined for all those who deny and blaspheme the Lord. That condemnation being the torment of hell for all eternity. Peter assumes that his readers understand and see false teachers prospering in the world. They're probably discouraged in seeing false teachers prosper. I know that I'm discouraged at times. I think about men like Joel Olstein and his church in Houston, Lakewood Church, that every week they have somewhere around 45,000 people that attend. 45,000 people. And we have to acknowledge that the Lord allows in His sovereignty the foolishness of that ministry to continue... 
and be amplified each Sunday. And it's discouraging to know that such evil in the world experiences success, but then realize that that's not true success. Because when I realize and see 45,000 foolish people sitting before a foolish false teacher, that's not success in the eyes of the Lord. That's just a large assembly of ignorance. None of those people have taken God's Word and and actually listened to what God says in His Word and, and verified it that that's what Joel Olstein is teaching. Instead, they are literally being led like lambs to the slaughter. And Peter reminds the people, his audience, his his readers, that God will not relent in his judgment. Look at verses 4 down to verse 10. He gives us three examples. Rebellious angels who rebel against God, the unrighteous in the day of Noah, and the wicked in the day of Sodom and Gomorrah and Lot. He says, if God, they all, this, these phrases all start with the word if. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to change of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. <coughs> and if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah a herald of righteousness with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. If by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, For as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Then, verse 9, the most important, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. So church, we're reminded in 2 Peter chapter 9 that, that, that the Lord, He knows. And He allows these false teachers for a time to have some form of prosperity and have some form of, of, of success, but it's not real success. It's not spiritual success in the eyes of the Lord. He's basically allowing them to play with their toys until a time that He punishes them and destroys them like foolish children. And in that time, when it comes, He will bring about a wrath that they can never understand or imagine. They clearly did not read about that wrath in the Bible because they don't teach about it. They don't warn their parishioners or congregation about it. Nor do they apply the wrath upon their own lives because they don't understand that they are false teachers. But Peter warns and promises that God is faithful He will bring about punishment to those who defy Him. He will cast Satan and his demons and all the unrighteous into the lake of fire that burns for eternity. And they will experience the just reward for all the defamation and blasphemous things that they spoke about the Lord Jesus. And so church, we are warned. 
And in that warning, we find great hope. Hope that we belong to a church where there is faithful preaching and teaching of God's Word from our leadership and elders. That you as people love God's Word and, and, and you are careful to not fall into these worldly myths and, and ideologies in our culture. That you are students of the Bible that, that don't just believe what is said, but you study to be approved of a workman, approved rightly dividing the word of truth yourself. That you're like the Bereans who are seeking to dive deeply into Scripture to understand it and to grow from it. And thankfully you understand the Gospel. Not a false gospel, but the true gospel. That without Christ, we would be dead in our trespasses and sins, but by trusting in Christ Jesus alone for our salvation, we have righteousness, we have salvation, we have forgiveness in Him alone. And therefore, we are rich in Him. And so as we conclude, as I conclude this sermon today, we transition to focus on that wealth that we have in Christ. That wealth is based upon a work that Christ accomplished on the cross for us. And so we enter in now to a time of the Lord's Supper to remember that sacrifice. That sacrifice that provided for us an inheritance with Christ. By His sacrificial death upon the cross, atoning for, the, uh, for His people, paying for their sins, paying the sin debt that He did not accrue, Jesus Christ died the death that we could not die. He rose victoriously from the grave so that we might be free, liberated, enriched in Him. And here at Redemption, we acknowledge the sacrifice that Christ has made. And we come together to take communion or the Lord's Supper. And we do that because we are a body united in Christ. Brothers and sisters in Jesus. So we don't take these these elements back home with us and, and individually take them. We take them in the presence of one another because we are united together. In one body in Christ, we are accountable to one another in covenant membership. Therefore, we take the Lord's Supper saying, this blood that was shed for me was also shed for you as a follower of Jesus. This body that was broken for you was broken for me because of being a follower of Jesus. And as we approach these things, we approach them with great seriousness we ask that you would uh, refrain from taking the Lord's Supper if there is unconfessed and um, unrepentant sin in your life and heart. The Bible warns, the, the, Paul warns the Corinthian church that if you enter the table or, or approach the table and take the, the Lord's Supper um, in an unworthy manner, that God will punish you, that He will judge you in different ways. The Corinthians, he judged them by making them sick because they were abusing the Lord's Supper as if it was just some other feast that they would enjoy. 
getting drunk on the wine and, and so on and so forth. They were disorderly in their worship and observing these things. And so we ask that you would take a moment. Adam's going to come up in a moment and, and lead us in song. And um, as he plays, just take a moment of quiet reflection upon your own life. That, that you are trusting in Christ. That you have confessed uh, known sin to Him. And then as you're ready, when you're, uh, we're, we'll come forward to take these elements back to your seat, and then we will partake of these things together. Let me pray. Father, in the name of your great and mighty Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, we come with thankfulness in our hearts. Father, we're thankful that, um, God, you have by your sovereign and providential plan allowed us to Uh, live our lives uh, free of falling into false teaching, that you have allowed us to understand the true gospel, that you have surrounded our lives with good teachers of your word, that you've provided resources throughout the history of the church and that are available for us today to teach us more about the true gospel by faithful teachers. We thank you for those things, God. We are amazed in all the different ways, with all the different technologies and medias, God, that we can learn and grow in Christ. So thank you for providing those things. And God, we pray for those that are caught up in false teaching. Lord, I think about, uh, as I mentioned, Costi Hen and the way you rescued him. And Lord, we pray that you would rescue others. People that might be in our lives, Father, that we would be faithful to help them see the, the error that they believe, the lies that they've been told, the exploitation that they've fallen into. And God, that you would save some in such, a, in, in such an environment. Because by the mighty power of Christ, the dead can come to life as we acknowledge and confess as we observe the Lord's Supper today, that as followers of Jesus, you have made dead people come to life again because of the work of Jesus on the cross. And for that, we're thankful. So, Father, we want to come now and honor your Son. We want to remember what He's done for us, and we want to say thanks. And In His name we pray. Amen. made me glad 
I heard the voice of Jesus say, Behold, I freely the living water, thirsty one, stoop down and drink and live. I came to Jesus and I drank that life-giving stream. My thirst was quenched, my soul revived, and now I live in I heard the voice of Jesus say, I am this dark world's light. Look unto me, your morn shall rise, and all your day be bright. I look to Jesus, and I found in Him my star, my sun. And in that light of life I walk Till traveling days are done I look to Jesus and I found In Him my star, my sun And in that light of life I walk Till traveling days are done You know, bread has great significance in the Bible. In the Old Testament, uh, if you'll remember in the the Exodus, uh, the people were not able to make the bread and allow the bread to rise, and and so they had unleavened bread. And that unleavened bread represented uh, sustenance for them, but it also meant freedom because they didn't have a chance to rise up because they left Egypt in such haste, such quickness. And so as they sat around and had their Passover meal and they shared the unleavened bread, it reminded them of the liberation and the freedom that God had provided through the exodus in Egypt. And that the, the, the fact that it was flat and that it had not risen was just a way in which they were reminded that God had been faithful to His Word and they left in the quickness of, of, of that day. And fast forward into the New Testament... And bread also represents the sustenance that is provided by Jesus. That just as Israel um, ate that bread in the wilderness and as they ate that bread at the Passover meal, Jesus stood before the people and he he multiplied the bread and provided uh, the bread to the people. And that were sitting out on the countryside, the fish and the loaves, And there he was providing miraculously this food for them, this sustenance to them. And all of that points to the fact that Jesus is our sustenance. 
Jesus is our liberator. Jesus is the one that bore his own body on the tree so that it would be broken for us. That he would bear the wrath and the weight of of sin for us. Not his own sin, but our sin. And so as he sat with his disciples at the Lord's table, uh, celebrating the Passover meal, in Matthew chapter 26, it says they were eating and Jesus took the bread and after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. Likewise, we, we fail to grasp the importance of blood in the history of God's people. If you can imagine for a moment that as a Jewish person taking your sacrifices to the temple and, and knowing that animals were slain on a daily basis, blood was shed on a daily basis, we have no concept of that. Those things gross us out when we even want to go donate blood. And these people were so familiar with the idea that in the presence of God, blood was shed for the forgiveness of sins. And there Jesus comes in the New Testament. And He becomes this picture of of the Passover lamb. The Passover lamb pointing back to when, again, they were liberated from Egypt and the blood was poured on the, uh, or, or wiped on the doorpost as a way of escape from the wrath of God. Jesus became the escape from the wrath of God by his atoning work on the cross. Therefore, when John the Baptist saw Jesus, he looked at him and he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. John understood. John understood the imagery and the picture that the blood of Jesus is what is needed for us to be truly atoned for our sins so that we might escape the wrath of God. And so Jesus, after he took the cup, when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink of it all of you for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Let's pray. Father, we do praise you and thank you for the the body and the blood of Christ. And as we remember what he's done for us, we give thanks. We give thanks as he gave thanks. Even as he was about to accomplish that work for us, he thanked you for allowing that work to be accomplished. He wasn't even a recipient of such a salvation as we are. And so, God, our thankfulness is even greater that Christ would give his life, that he would be the propitiation for our sin, that he would bear the scars and the wounds that brought about our healing. And for that, we say thank you. In his name we pray. Amen. Let's stand together. Amazing. The slides went out while you were...